0: Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today, I'm joined down the line from Los Angeles, California, by Mark Malkin, Senior Culture and Events Editor at Variety, and host of the Just for Variety podcast. One of Hollywood's most recognisable faces on the red carpet, Mark is an award-winning and Emmy-nominated journalist with more than two decades of experience working across broadcast, print, and digital media. At Variety, he's turned his signature news-making conversations with the biggest screen names into the most listen just for variety podcast previously a writer and editor for the new york daily news us weekly and new york magazine mark also served as an on-air correspondent at e-news he lives in los angeles with his husband fabian and their two dogs mark thank you for joining me
1: i am so happy to be here
0: i love hollywood what's and all i mean has it worn off for you the magic or do you still look at the sign and feel that uh, that frisson of excitement
1: i will say that and i say i say this a lot is You know, I'm just a poor little Jewish kid from Queens, New York. I didn't grow up in this world. I didn't grow up with money. I didn't grow up with glamour. So I have to say most days I kind of pinch myself and say, wow, I get to do what I get to do. I don't I don't take it for granted. You know, I'm not. There are a lot of people in Hollywood. There are a lot, you know, in in any industry, really. Who you know sort of gets cynical and jaded, and and my my theory on that, especially with Hollywood, and and for people who do what I do, I said, fine, then go be a tax accountant during tax season. If that's what and no offense to tax experts and uh, certified public accountants, but that's not for me. And I know what I get to do. It's just it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of hard work. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I do love what I do. So I have not the shine has not tarnished for me. I've
0: been working in Hollywood now for over a decade and I was attracted to it by, you know, people saying that you've got to be a phony to succeed and uh, all of these kind of <laughs> things. Because I, I wanted that. But it turns out that a lot of people are hardworking, creative and very nice. Yeah, I mean,
1: listen, you know, it, it, there is a lot of phoniness. There's a lot of, you know, life seen through an Instagram filter pretty much. For me, you know, I found my my pathway. I found my little... Um, Yellow Brick Road, um, and I've stayed on it. You know, it is. It's it is full of people who are hardworking. It is full of people who are you know the world's most creative people. Um, some of the most inspiring um, creative storytellers, content creators, and like any business, there are people who you don't want to hang out with, who you don't want to talk to, um, and you make do and you figure out how to you know survive that. But you know, anytime. I'm on a red carpet and I spend a lot of time on red carpets. I pinch myself. I'm like, how did I get here? How did I get to do what I do? And, you know, there was a lot, a lot of hard work.
0: (laughs) Well, I imagine the answer is probably an Uber or some kind of car service, but you meant figuratively (laughs) rather (laughs) than literally. So (laughs) So my briefing notes here about your career so far says that you were born and then now you're doing this job. Like there seems to be a gap in between. Could you fill our listeners through the uh, sort of act one? How did you get to be doing this?
1: So I grew up, you know, poor kid, lower middle Clinton, not even middle class. Um, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but they worked really hard. They, you know, they, they made sure we had, a me and my brother had a roof over our heads and we ate. And I went to high school, had a fine high school life, had fun, um, went to college, uh, Boston University. You know, this is the late 80s, early 90s. So I went to college thinking I'm going to go become a lawyer. And I literally would write down on a piece of paper. By the time I'm 22, I'm going to be a millionaire. Um, this is a time when uh, Dynasty was the most popular show. Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. So, we had Team no Alexis
0: doubt. or Team Crystal.
1: Well, you know, no one's ever asked me that. Um, I will oh, say Alexis was um, wrong. I-,
0: I hated the fact that it presented Crystal as like this angelic person. She was a family wrecker. She stole Blake she- Break- Break- Break from Alexis.
1: She did. But I love that you're blaming Crystal and not Blake. But we won't get into the misogyny of that. Um,
0: well, I'm standing, I'm standing <laughs> up for one woman amidst a, a disagreement with another woman, So I'm, It's nothing to do with gender, darling.
1: Um, I, I know, would know that politics. you
0: make a great politician because you, you haven't yet been drawn on whether you're Team Alexis or Team Crystal. I no, know.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming. So probably back in the day, I was probably Team Crystal because... Um, Alexis is just so evil, but as I've gotten older and I've gotten gayer and queerer, Alexis
0: (laughs) She was good at it though as well, wasn't she? She
1: The biggest problem I
0: have with Crystal now retrospectively is that she was boring At least Alexis was married to dozens of people and wanted to kill people and, you know, do wrong
1: And listen, Alexis had you know, the best lines When you see, you know, Alexis footage of Alexis on TikTok you know, you don't see Crystal. She didn't have great lines. Maybe she got great lines when the evil twin came in, you know, but you don't see much of that. But Alexis had, you know, the best lines. And of course, you know, then there was Diane Carroll as uh, oh, Dominique Devereaux. she was
0: Devereaux. Amazing. Dominique a- Devereaux.
1: Yeah, I think that. Welcome was the to the
0: Dynasty Podcast. I'm your host. But I, do you know what?
1: I don't care. This is
0: why I have no listeners because we go off on tangents. I'm loving but, this.
1: But so, so the point of all this dynasty talk, I wanted to be rich. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be rich when I went to college. Um, but I took a news writing class my my freshman year, my first year in college.
0: That was your first step was... toward penury. Then was it not? Because no, I don't yeah. know of any journalist apart from Piers Morgan who's made a few bob doing journalism.
1: Right. So I um, took this news writing class. Um, my professor is Norman Moyes, who is this old school, stereotypical, cliche newspaper editor with the Boston Herald, you know, literally like a fedora cigar, the whole press tag in his fedora. I took this news writing class and I literally fell in love with news writing. And I came home, I think, winter, winter break, and I said to my family, I said, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I want to be a journalist. Um, they were like, what, What are you?" Uh, what? I, I'm on your parents' side.
0: I, I think you should have been a lawyer. Yeah, so... You'd be deeply you know, unhappy, but you might have a couple, of few more grand in, in the bank.
1: True, but money <laughs> isn't. It's not all about money. That's it. So, you know, I take a news writing class and I absolutely loved it. I get involved with the school newspaper. And my first job out of school was at a weekly newspaper called Bay Window's which sounds like a real estate newspaper, but it was actually an LGBTQ newspaper, a weekly newspaper. By that time, I had another professor who was really kind of mentoring me, but I wasn't out to him. I hadn't told him I was gay. And I get this job when I graduated and I went to his office and I said, I got a job at Bay Windows. He said, what is that? I said, a gay newspaper. He said, you've just ruined your career. And obviously that has stuck with me because I tell that story a lot. And I kind of remember that story every time my career has Gone up a little bit, um, and but I also understood what you're saying.
0: Before the dawn,
1: yeah, but it was also you know this was this was the early 90s, so you didn't have you know being out in a newsroom, being openly gay um, in media was you know we didn't have Anderson Cooper, we didn't have Don Lemon, you know we didn't have uh, here in the, the states Robin Roberts, you know no one was out. There's no one out at the New York Times, so. At that time, I understood what he was saying. And there was a fear, like, am I ruining my career by being openly gay? And I was like, you know what, I'm going. And what was great about working in the gay You're press being at that. You've
0: openly awesome. I'm so full of oh, respect for for what you did.
1: Thank you. Yeah, and it was a pretty amazing time because this is when Clinton was running for office. And don't ask, don't tell. Was...
0: Do you remember that? Yeah, isn't it? People wouldn't get now just what a big deal it was to come out then. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's still difficult now, but
1: then, wow. But, and listen, so Clinton's running for office. The two big, big subjects of the day were don't ask, don't tell, and the AIDS epidemic. Um, We were at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Research was happening, but not fast enough. Remember so those
0: right-wing Christian evangelicals used to say it was God's punishment for being gay. God's how disgusting yeah. is that? When you, how can people think that?
1: I, you know, one of the most horrific reporting assignments I ever had. It was inspiring, but also horrific. In Boston, Boston is a very Boston's a very interesting town. I call it vanilla on the outside, chocolate on the inside. Like everyone's all prim and proper, but who knows what they're doing behind closed doors? Mm. But I'm very Catholic. It's very Catholic, Um, very
0: religious, isn't it?
1: Very religious, has a very um, long history of racism. Um, So the Irish gay group in Boston was the first to sue to uh, march in their St. Patrick's Day parade. And this was back in 92, maybe. I think it was about 92, 93. And the gays were allowed to march um, in the St. Patrick's Day parade. I was Jesus, sort of the Im- gays
0: were allowed to match. Like it was yeah. someone's daring yeah. to give you permission. Like, oh, we'll let, we'll and, let the gays in this year. Yeah. Honestly, and I, wow.
1: And and I was sort of embedded with them because I was the gay press. So we um, met at a church, I remember, at in one part of Boston. Got into, you know, uh, a van, probably, a bus. Went over there and in front of the gay group and in back of the gay group were two big box trucks full of riot police because they were scared there was going to be riots and where i was walking along, alongside of them in the parade and it was probably one of the most horrific scariest things we're talking beer bottles being thrown little wow. shoot grandmas screaming f you you f were you know you take the homophobic slur and it was like people people be, we were being spit on
0: what is and, wrong with people
1: it was, you know, it was ignorance. It was a real big, big ignorance. It's and more at,
0: than ignorance. I honestly right. just and think then, they're disgusting people. Turns my yes, stomach.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the parade, I remember there, the police were there and the police just looked at us, looked at the group and said, run, get back to the vans. And we're running to the vans. And I look back and it's literally a mob of people with two by fours in their hands. So the point of that is, that it was an incredible time to be in the gay press because it was also a time when politicians really started courting the gay vote. They realized this was a block of voters that could get them elected or not elected. And that was the weird thing about Boston. You had this very conservative part, but then I'm going to city hall to sit down with the mayor because he wants the gay press to cover him because he wants the gay vote. So it was really, really an incredible, incredible moment the way I looked at it was, yes, I worked for a gay newspaper, but I looked at it as if I worked for any so-called mainstream paper, and I just happened to be on the gay beat. And it was an incredible time. I did that for a few years, um, and then I was recruited by Gannett, which you know, as you probably know, the owner of USA Today. That's their oh, most we've had executives property. from
0: Gannett on. Oh, we've had the editor of USA Today on. Yeah, things. I mean, Gannett, yeah, huge
1: yes. company, a behemoth. So- Behemoth. And they have local newspapers. Through, I, I don't know how big they are now with that, but they have local newspapers throughout the U.S.
0: They've still and, got about 400.
1: Yeah. And what happened was um, a, a new group had started back in the early 90s because the National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association. Um, they had their first convention and they had a job fair and there were recruiters from Gannett. And I was the first um, person recruited out of that job fair to a job. And I went to work for Gannett for a small newspaper in Connecticut called the Norwich Bulletin. And I was a town reporter like any you know, newspaper reporter does. They start off covering town hall meetings and, you know, incinerator issues and trash issues. Then, you know, Sunday night I spent in the newsroom listening to the police scanner when there was a crime. I got in my car and I went and covered the crime.
0: So, if you were um, the protagonist in Karate Kid 1, we're in the wax on, wax off stage where you, you don't yeah. realize it's obviously building a strong foundation for what comes next, but isn't particularly exciting.
1: Yeah, and it, it was an amazing time. I mean, I learned to this day, I use the same editing skills I learned at like that, because, as we know, they're not into very long stories, um, they're very economic with their words. And I really know how to just cut down a story to, you know, let's get to the facts. Let's just get to the facts. You know, we don't need that word, we don't need that word. So did that for about a year, it was a little tough. I was a gay Jew in Southeastern Connecticut, not the friendliest place for that. What was the biggest uh, source of
0: discrimination then? Was it homophobia or antisemitism?
1: I would say homophobia, I was out obviously because I came from, you know, and Gannett, you know, they, they wanted diversity in their news and they knew I was gay. And I was doing a lot of gay stories. I remember a Sunday, I did a cover story for the Sunday paper on gay life in Southeastern Connecticut. And they had a, we did this great graphic. It was a big pink triangle. Um, I got like the local guy who owned the gas station to come out of the closet. And, you know, he was from this very prestigious family in the area and, when he came out, there were a lot of people who showed up at the gas station and said, I'll never buy gas from you again because you're gay. I'm not, but like, gas is gay. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But to the anti Semitism, there were um, flea markets and you know antique shops in the area that were selling World War II memorabilia. <laughs> um, and I do that in air quotes. And it was like Nazi stuff. But if you took a closer look, you realize they weren't antiques; they they were brand new swastikas. So there was a mixture of that, and um, I'm it's weird the city... First
0: Amendment in America because in in France or Germany, if you if you say anything that, denying the Holocaust or try to sell something like that, you'd go to prison.
1: Yeah, um, so the,
0: your First Amendment right to spread that hate. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And you know, I'm a city boy. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Queens. Um, Southeastern Connecticut was it was very suburban. You know, it was the first time I was really driving a car because um, I never drove when I was in the city. I didn't drive when I was in Boston. Um, so I just said, you know what? I need to go back to the city, move back to Boston. Um, there was at Harvard there was a uh, immersion program called the Radcliffe Publishing Course. There was six weeks at Harvard for the summer. Three weeks was complete immersion into book publishing, and three weeks into magazine publishing. So you lived at Harvard. And they brought in the top people from media to basically give lectures. Um, You know, everyone from, like, the Tina Browns of the world. Um, The year that I was there, for the magazine side, we had John F. Kennedy Jr. come. He was just about to launch George Magazine, and he came and lectured. And one of the reasons I did this course was, one, you were kind of guaranteed a job if you did the Radcliffe Publishing course. It was very, you know, it had a huge network in New York. Um, But I also wanted to see if I wanted to go into book publishing, um, which I realized I didn't because it was way too slow paced for me. But from the Radcliffe Publishing course, I got a job at Premier Magazine in New York City, which was a monthly magazine um, that is no longer around. But it was a Hachette magazine. It was a monthly, basically entertainment weekly, just for movies on a monthly basis. And I went and I was an editorial assistant. You know, at that point, I was writing for the Boston Globe For the Boston Phoenix, which was their alternative weekly in Boston. I had all this experience. But to go back to New York, I kind of had to start over. So I was little, I was on the older side as an editorial assistant in New York. But, um, you know, I just did that for a year and sort of moved up the ranks. And from there, that was how I got into entertainment journalism. I didn't know what a publicist was. I actually didn't even know what Premier Magazine was when I got the job. Um, I got the job I believe because one, I had some experience, but also I was a very fast transcriber because my mentor was a a man named Peter Biskind and another editor, Howard um, Karen. And Peter um, was a big entertainment writer. He went on to write um, that last, it was a few years ago now, but a big, big um, biography of uh, Warren Beatty. But I would transcribe his interviews. Um, And that's how I learned a lot of my interviewing skills just from transcribing his interviews
0: i've always found the best way to learn is to see other people do it on the job you know almost by osmosis it's one of the reasons why i think the pandemic's harder on younger people because oh yeah i'm fine remote working because i'm old and you know tired and jaded and i feel i know it all Mm -hmm. even that's that's wrong but like at least i've got 20 years experience whereas if you're starting out how can you how can you learn when you're just zooming all the time from home
1: that's so true. Like even yesterday, you know, we have interns at Variety who go to red carpets and cover red carpets for me. And I sat down with an intern. I said, come to my office. I'll edit. Let's edit your piece together. And it just feels so good. And I I actually apologized. I said, I'm sorry, we don't get to do this more often. I know, you know, we're kind of half virtual and half um, in the office. But anytime to try to edit someone on Zoom with them, it's just, it's nearly impossible. Um, It's just not the same. So it's really great when I get to sit down with these um, young people and really edit in real time, face to face, it's really fantastic. So I did Premiere, I went from Premiere, I'm gonna you know, sort of speed up along here, I went from Premiere, then I went, helped launch a teen magazine called Twist. I did that, then I went freelance for a little while, I was writing for magazines, newspapers all over New York. Then I went to go work for the New York Daily News, for a column there called Russian Malloy. It was a gossip column at the Daily News. It was George Rush and Joanna Malloy, they were a married couple. And I came in to be one of their reporters. And that's sort of really sort of where everything took off from there. I went from the New York Daily News to Us Weekly. And at that point, Us Weekly was a monthly magazine. This is when they launched to become a, a weekly magazine. A lot of people don't remember that they were actually a monthly. And I did Us Weekly for... Uh, for a couple of years. Then I went to New York Magazine. Um, I was the writer and editor of the Intelligencer column, which was their gossip column. Did that for two years. Then I was recruited back to Us Weekly as the news editor. I did that for a year. I will say right now, it wasn't my favorite job, not because anything bad at Us Weekly. I just don't like managing that many people. <laughs> um, and I, I manage people year.
0: and I can assure you it's tedious.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I did that for about a year and then um, entertainment tonight reached out to me and I had been on entertainment tonight a lot, you know, as a talking head um, because of, you know, my so-called celebrity expertise and they called me and they said, we're launching a new show called the insider. We'd love for you to come to the insider and do what you do in print, but do it for us. Break news. Cause that was, that's my thing. I love breaking news. And, um, I started interviewing with them, and before I knew it, I was on a plane, and I relocated to Los Angeles about 19 years ago to help launch The Insider. So I worked for The Insider and Entertainment Tonight, did that for a couple of years, and then um, I really missed writing, so I went over to E-News, um, e and was writing a column there and was at E-News then for, you know, that's where a lot of people know me from. I was there for 11 years. And that's where my on-air correspondent work really took off. So I was doing a lot of that for them. And after 11 years, it was time for something new. So I uh, went freelance. And I was, you know, again, writing for a lot of places, covering carpets for a lot of places. And I did that for a few months. And then um, Variety happened. And I've been at Variety now for um, almost uh, July, it'll be five years. And it's just... I'm one of those people who do, you know, I do put on Twitter hashtag I love my job because I do. I know you you, you introed me, so you gave my little um qualifications for variety. Um, and here I am doing what I love to do, still loving it after, you know, more than 25 years in the business.
0: You can see that glint in the eye that you've got, out of it. Tell, <laughs> paint, paint a picture for our listeners if you would though about what a sure. what your job is, like brass tax. Like what does a typical week look like? And and you know, please do go into detail, however yeah. monotonous.
1: I'm going to start with last Friday night because it'll give you the weekend too. Last Friday night, we work from home on Fridays. The magazine goes to goes to press on Tuesdays, so on Friday I'm sort of finishing up. You know, in the magazine I have my column, just a variety. Then we have what's called exposure, which is all our party and event coverage. So I'm responsible for obviously my column, but then all of our event coverage, so there's the red carpets and different uh, events um, in LA or New York or anywhere for that matter. So I'm sort of, that sort of as the week goes on, you know, someone, if I send someone to cover a red carpet, they send in their story, I'm I'm selecting photos, I'm putting together the, the text for said um, coverage in the magazine. So those, those pages are coming together slowly but surely. Uh, my column, uh, I'm usually filing that Monday morning because usually there's something happening on the weekend that I want to get in my column. So last Friday night, you know, I, I worked from home, but then I went up to Hollywood um, to interview Carol Burnett because they were doing an FYC event for her. FYC was For Your Consideration, which is basically campaigning for an Emmy. Um, Carol Burnett had her 90th birthday special on NBC, and she was there to do a panel. She was doing a and a Q&A, um, and they had a little red carpet. And I was like, I want to go interview Carol Burnett. She's Carol Burnett. She's 90 years old. I don't know how many chances I'm going to get to do this again. And she's Carol Burnett. She's a legend. She's an icon. She's You know, she's Cara Burnett. So I ran, I interviewed her, got a little news out of her, um, which will be in my column next week. And then Saturday, um, Saturday night, I cover another event. I went to another red carpet. Charlize Theron has her Africa Outreach Program, um, which is her nonprofit that does um, work with youth in Southern Africa. And she does this event every year. And um, I'm going to go, I want to talk to Charlize. I always have a great time talking to her. The cast of Fast X is going to be there. So it's the Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez. The movie has just come out. Oh, I want to talk to them. We haven't had much time to talk to them on camera. So we send a video crew with me. You know, like Carol Burnett, it was just audio. We didn't have a video crew. So I do obviously both. Um, so Saturday night, I go to the Charlize event. I get to the Charlize event and find out that Charlize is not going to be there because she tested positive for COVID. So I was like, mm. You know, a little frustrating, but I get this great interview with Vin Diesel. I get news out of Vin Diesel. He tells me that, you know, after they finish this Fast and Furious, this part of the franchise, he has multiple spinoffs in the works, including a female-led Fast and Furious.
0: Ultimately, that's it's all about family.
1: It's always about family, isn't it? Fast, Furious, family. Um, (laughs) So I do that on Saturday nights. Um, then my debate is: Do I put up the Vin story on Sunday? Where you know are that many people reading stories? Do I wait till Monday morning? There were other outlets there. I don't know what they got, but I know they didn't get as much time with Vin as I got with Vin. So probably not. And I'm um, Variety, so I'm going to get a different angle than the E Newses and the Extra and Access Hollywoods of the world. So it's this sort of internal debate that goes on all the time with me. When should I post something? What's the best time to do it? And I decided, you know what, Monday morning is better. So Sunday, uh, pretty much a day off, but I am working on my column a little bit because it's due, um, you know, my deadline is Monday. Um, And then Monday, it's in the office. Monday's an in the office day. So I'm in the office, I'm working on my column, finishing, you know, closing pages for the magazine, um, figuring out what I'm gonna do for the next issue. And then Monday night, I had a red carpet, and it was I can't even remember now. Oh, Monday night was um, Zoe Deschanel has a new show on HBO's new streaming service Max, or renamed streaming service Max. Um, I'm going to go talk to jo- Zoe Deschanel for a little bit. Get some It was a brilliant, little-
0: brilliant tweet last night from the Empire State Building, which I followed. It, it said, "In the honor of HBO Max changing its name, we will forth be hit by falling forth- in as building." <laughs> Anyways, I
1: digress. (laughs) That is pretty funny. Um, And uh, so I go. I talk to Zoe, and part of the event is this eight uh, no seven course dinner um, because her show is a food show. So I go and um, I have this lovely dinner and see old friends and make new friends. A couple people tell me some stuff that I could use for stories and um, stories we're working on. Tuesday, I go in the office. Um, we're closing, you know, we finally finish closing the pages for this week's issue, which comes out today, which comes out on Wednesdays. So what happens is with my column, my column is probably about four to five items in it. the so four or five short stories. And then what I do for online is I expand each item into a full story. So I'm working on expanding those stories. So I I had to post my Zoe story for my interview the night before. Then I post a story with um, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, who are, you know, musical geniuses who um, have the show on Broadway called Some Like It Hot. Um, I do an interview with them. They give me some scoop. They say they've been working on the new season of Only Murders in the Building, um, but they only tease me. I said, does that mean there's a musical episode coming up in season three? And they said, that's all we could say, but you do the math. So there's my fun, you know, headline, is there a musical episode coming for the show in season three? Then um, because of traffic, I leave the office. (laughs) I can't remember I'm getting into such granular detail. Um, I leave the office at three o'clock so I don't get stuck in traffic trying to get to Hollywood because our office is on the West side and Hollywood is on the East side. So I leave at three o'clock and make a pit stop at home, um, continue my work at home, um, filing stories. Then I go up to Hollywood to do an interview with Lisa Vanderpump um, and the producer of Vanderpump Rules um, because they are two campaigning for an Emmy. So they are there for a Q&A. So there's a little red carpet. I talk to them. An hour before I'm gonna talk to them, the ratings come out for the season 10 finale of Vanderpump Rules and it has, you know, the biggest ratings they've ever had. So it's gonna be great to get a reaction from them on the, you know, the crazy ratings. And so I do that. Then I send a note to, my newsroom saying, hey, I'm gonna write this up real quick. I have Lisa and Alex um, reacting to the um, ratings. Um, So I come home, transcribe, write up a story, get in touch with the night editor. I said, how much longer are you online for? He's like another half hour. I said, great, I'm filing my story now. I find my story, we send out a breaking news alert. And then I debate whether I should keep writing and doing other stories or do I need to just Probably eat (laughs) dinner. So I eat dinner, I get on the couch, I start watching the Donna Summer documentary and fall asleep.
0: You're a bit lazy, aren't you? I mean, you could have written written more stuff than if you'd not fallen asleep.
1: I hate you, Paul. I hate you. You're you're, you're (laughs) pushing that button. You're pushing that button. Oh,
0: thank you, darling. Um, (laughs) I I do try to provoke. I mean, what's the balance of like the the awesome, creative, sort of celeb-driven, I, I hesitate to say it's sort of nice stuff, with the business of Hollywood? I mean, how do you sort of <laughs> marry the two? I mean, we're talking at the moment, at the time of recording, Hollywood's in the midst of a writer strike, and there's been many before, yes. but this one seems to be seriously disruptive. And, um, you know, the the talk of replacing writers
1: with AI, with AI disturbs yeah. me.
0: For me, the biggest question is, who would Jenna Ortega then fall out
1: with? She can't fall out with a chatbot. I'm sure she could probably find something mean to say about AI. Um, I think, you know, listen, what, what is great about variety, and for my sweet spot, is variety obviously is a trade. It's been around for 100, I think it's 118 years now, which blows my mind. If you ever come to the variety office, the next time you are in LA, you have to come, there are blow up photos of like... Lucille Ball reading Variety, Um, Julie Andrews on the set of Sound of Music reading Variety, Frank Sinatra reading Variety. It just blows my mind when I see things like that. But um, so it's a trade. You know, it is traditionally a trade. But as the years have gone on, it's moved into, you know, the consumer market. We do more um, consumer stories also. But what I love, and I think last night was a good... um, Example of that, when I went to talk to Lisa Vanderpump and Alex Baskin, who, again, the producers of Vanderpump Rules, I wasn't going there just to talk about the drama that went on with Vanderpump Rules. And correct, Ben. by the way, please tell me, I don't have no idea if Vanderpump Rules is something big in the UK or not. So um, it's a huge reality show here.
0: It's got some impact here, but it's not as big as it is in the US.
1: Yeah, so it, it's this huge story here in the US But, you know, there's the tabloid stuff of it, which is, it's a big cheating scandal that went on in the show, and it was all captured on camera, and so on and so forth, where yes, that's part of my story, but I'm also able to go talk to the producers about the ratings, where the tabloids, they're not going to, they may cover the ratings, but it's not going to be as big a story for them, and when I get them to do a headline that basically says, yeah, the ratings are great, but it's also not a time where we send out an email to the cast saying, hey, look how great we're doing, because it involved this really bad infidelity and horrible scandal. So the point of that is um, what's great about Variety is I get to do the business stuff and I get to do sort of the consumer stuff. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit I'm not a, a the business trade person who's like in the weeds of everything, but to your point, so the writer's strike, it's affecting everything here in LA, it's economics, it's um, just, you know, everyone sort of right now is living in this fear of what's next, what's next. So when the writer's strike first was happening, you know, I was at the Met Gala in New York, um, on the carpet. And literally, i that's when the negotiations were breaking down as the Met Gala carpet was happening. We were going to find out within an hour or two of the Met Gala happening, whether the writers are on strike or not. I'm Variety. So yes, I'm there at the Met Gala. It's fun. It's silly. It's glamorous. It's you know ostentatious, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to cover that. But I'm also going to ask certain people when I get the chance to talk about the writer's strike.
0: This seems and to I be don't... worse than usual, though, because it's not, not, not merely an argument of a... Uh money is more of a threat, uh, like an existential threat to the, the concept of needing writers
1: per well, se, yeah, it, which is almost it, unthinkable. It is, and there's a lot of money involved here, but you know, AI, it's crazy to think that a script could be written by AI, but that of course gets into economics too, because if you write a script by AI, you don't have to pay a writer. And the writers really want some rules about AI, you know, in writing where the producers, the the group that represents the producers saying, you know what, we don't have to put it in writing, let's watch it, let's see how, let's see what happens and we'll have a meeting every year about it. And the writer's like, no, we see literally the writing on the wall. And then what everyone needs to realize is like, yes, the writers are affected, they're the ones on strike, but then when a show gets shut down because of the writer's strike, It's not just the writers who are affected. It's everyone from the guy driving the truck to the guy cooking the meal to the makeup artist, the hair person. So there are people who are out of work and it's just a domino effect. And what's happening now is they're not even negotiating right now with the writers because they're the producers are in the middle of negotiating with SAG-AFTRA, which are all the actors. If the actors go on strike, this town will be shut down. Shut down. Disney, you, you can't do anything without, obviously, without actors. You can't, nothing. And it's going to come from, it's not just shut down production-wise. It's not like a TV show is just going to stop going. It's not a film is going to stop going. There's I've going seen to be no several publicity. actors come out in
0: solidarity, though.
1: Yeah, there's going to be Man, no I saw Manny Zima
0: just about 20 minutes ago on Instagram, who was very proudly uh, demonstrating with them and refusing to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, and it, it's it's happening. And, you know, um, there's also negotiations going on with the DGA, which is the director's guild. So the directors may go on strike. And anyone who tries to tell you they know what's going to happen or they're hearing what's going to happen, they don't. No one really knows. And there's all theories. So if the writers are on strike, the theory goes, the directors will go on strike too. The two of them will gang up against the producers and the producers will have to bend. Then there's the argument, no, nope, the Directors Guild is going to push the producers so much, they'll get what they want. And the producers then say the Writers Guild, look, we gave the Directors Guild what they want. You're the ones who are going to look like the bad ones who are shutting the town down. So it's really um, quite a, a puzzle right now because no one, no one knows what's going to happen.
0: It's the ancient Chinese curse, isn't it? May you live in interesting times. I I mean, I, I I don't know what how this is going to play out, but not in a good way. This is this is bad tension, isn't it?
1: No, it, you know, and then you know, you look at like um the Tony Awards, you know, which are you know the, the big awards for Broadway, they almost didn't happen because they asked the Writers Guild, they said, could we have a waiver? Could we still put on the Tonys? Because Broadway is in such bad shape because of COVID, they're still rebounding. And the writers guild said no. And the Tonys had to go back to them, like, what if we do it this way, this way, or that way? And they said, okay, we won't pick at you if you do it this way. We don't know what, those, um, what the outline is right now, but what we do know is that the Tonys are not going to be a written show. There cannot be one piece of written material. So, how is this show going to happen? It's still a mystery, but it is going to happen. It is going to be broadcast. But it's, you know, if the Tonys didn't happen, that would have been a huge, huge setback for Broadway because it is shown that the Tonys do increase not only box office sales in New York and Broadway, but these shows travel, you know, they have touring companies and it helps um, those too. So the uh, Tonys will happen, but everyone's sort of, you know, Ariana DeBose is the host, but no one could write anything for her. She's not allowed to have anything written for her. So is it just going to be this completely ad lib award show, which is Could be hilarious in the right hand, but also could be a total disaster. So it's going to be really interesting to see um, what they come up with.
0: What's the biggest challenge in your job? But like not, not just sort of day to day, but also like existentially. Like we had some political journalists on recently and they were saying the problem with interviewing the prime minister or, you know, the president is the people arranging that have the power to switch off that access, although you have to hold power to account without them, you know, without access to those people, you're screwed. Uh, And uh, we've seen what happens with Trump. I had the editor of Empire Magazine on a couple of years ago and she was saying that sometimes studios, very rarely, had actually retaliated against giving some of their films a bad review by the next big picture that came out. They'd give other movie magazines better access on set and so on. And, you know, it's just this unspoken very very fine line which basically boils down to journalistic integrity and honor you you've got to you've got to have your integrity but you, you've also got to have copy and content
1: right and i think you know in that case it's all for me it's it's a case-by-case basis in in the sense of i'll give you another example Writer strike is happening just uh, i mean a few days after the writer strike i'm back from new york from the met gala and I'm going to this big fundraiser, big, big, big money fundraiser for this very rare disease that one of the town's big managers, her son, has it. It's a horrible disease, the skin condition. She does this event every year, right? For the event, she's been very hesitant to have press there in years past because. She wants her guests who are usually, you know, big stars to just feel comfortable, right? So I've never, I've never gone to the event. They've never opened it up to the press. This year, they say, you know what? We need more attention to this disease. We need to have the press there. We need to have the press there. So I go. Judd Apatow is hosting. I want to get Judd Apatow on the writer's strike. He's someone you want to hear his voice. And there's sort of an internal debate for about a minute of like, oh, I'm here. It's for this wonderful cause, am I going to just make my story about what does Judd Apatow say about the Writers Guild? But I'm like, I have to, I can't interview Judd at this event and not ask him about the Writers Strike. It's like, it's more than an elephant in the room. And I asked Judd and he gives me great bites, great quotes. So I go and I post that story that night. Um, and that story went everywhere. went you know, it, it was picked up everywhere, numbers were great on it, blah, blah. But then I did another story on the, the fundraiser and how much they raised and who was there and so on and so forth. So that was where my balance was. I wasn't just going to make one story, just the writer strike. I know I was also there to cover, you know, this great cause. And I think, you know, the second story I did, it, there was nothing less important about it. It gave attention to this horrendous disease. It gave attention to raising this money. Um, so there's always a balance of journalistically, what do you do um, when you are, do you have access to people? What are you asking them? Is it appropriate to ask them at this time? And it's, it's a constant debate, you know. especially when I'm on a red carpet. Do I ask about this drama or this scandal or do I stick to just the project? Um, And it's sort of, it's really, for me, it's a case-by-case basis. But yeah, you know, variety needs access to people, but also variety is variety. We have the respect where 99% of the time, no one's going to tell us what we're allowed to ask or not ask. Um, And sometimes they'll say, please don't ask about that. And to be honest with you, I never had an intention to ask about it. So I'm fine with that. Um, But then there are times where they'll say like, don't ask about that. I'm like, I can't do an interview with your client if I can't ask about that. And then sometimes they'll say, okay, we could do it. Or sometimes they'll say, we're going to have to pass if we know you're going to ask about it. That happens. But, you know, for sure, there are going to be celebs, there are going to be executives who get pissed off at Variety because we are the business of Hollywood. And sometimes, as we know, the business of Hollywood could be very, very messy.
0: So we've talked about AI bots replacing writers. I mean, yeah. wouldn't Jay Penske save money by replacing you with a, a robot? Like, is it is this going to happen where journalism itself is going to become, yeah. like, under threat? And, and obviously, I'd, I I ask that with the greatest respect, because yeah. clearly it would never do as good a job as you. And in fact, as a reader, I would probably boycott any media brand that used robots um, yeah, in I, my own I, self-interest I... as well as principle. But ultimately, th- there must be some threats. I mean, already bots are doing analyses of, like, stock market data and sports results.
1: I have not spoken to Jay Penske about this. I don't believe, you know, don't believe he would ever replace it. You know, Jay is very dedicated. Um, Yeah, I've I've met him several times. He's a good guy. He
0: believes in journalism. So he's, luckily, yeah, you've got an anti-boss employer, but what about um, about a pro-boss, someone like Rupert Murdoch, who who wouldn't hesitate to replace you with the T-1000? You
1: know, I think, you know, is it scary? For sure. But I also know that I'll tell you, the other day I was like, I wanted to understand more about AI, so I downloaded chat, whatever it's called, onto my phone, and I said, write an essay about Mark Malkin, and it did, got certain things wrong, and it was very um, basic in the sense of I could tell exactly where whatever this robot was was pulling stuff from. You know, they were finding stories about me, or um, they would look in my bio, and You know, what's scary, and this is where I think the writers come in with the writers because it's like right now, it's very elementary AI. So it's very easy to look at it and be like, obviously, we could tell the difference, you know, an AI story um, and a story written by, you know, a journalist. But we just don't know what the future holds. And I think that's what the writers want to get a hold of. They want to say, we've got to put some things in place now that make sure that, the technology is serving us, and we're not serving the technology. And I take that—that's almost a verbatim quote. I interviewed Joe Russo, um, you know, one half of the Russo brothers, directors of the Avengers movies. Um, they just produced um, Citadel, then a huge Amazon series. And I spoke to Joe about it. I said, "You know, are you worried about AI?" And he said, "We all should. We all should be scared of AI." He said. And like what I just said, he said, you know, the technology has to serve the artists. The artist not serve the technology. He said, look at James Cameron's career. He's been doing this since day one. So with that in mind, ethically, you would hope Hollywood would say, and producers would say, yes, the artist should be able to use technology and not the technology to use artists. But I think the writers and other um, creatives want want that in writing. They want some sort of you know, for lack of a better term, rules and regulations. So just when AI, because there is going to be a time where AI gets that sophisticated, are we going to be able to tell the difference? And when I say we, we know now that, you know, the average reader may not know, may not be able to know the difference right now. We know there's disinformation that is spread with the use of AI. Um, So it is scary, it is a threat to um, creatives in hollywood um and it's a threat to anyone really who is putting pen to paper or paintbrush to you know canvas for that matter um so it is it is is a scary time
0: another thing that fascinates me about hollywood is how things like awards are at the cutting edge of where society is going right now so for example the oscars have a best actor and an actress and yet when the actress wins that award. She's described as an actor because she's a prof- That's her profession. She's a, an actor. Right. So why, if you think about it, it is weird that we delineate acting performance awards on gender terms. Um, yeah, and yeah, yet, yeah. what's the alternative? Is it that we have j- three best actor awards and who? Because that's the other problem we have. You know, you have. Do you remember Oscars so white? Of course you do. The minute yeah. you open it up, all the men will just win both awards. This is a conundrum.
1: This is, this is a tricky, and there are award shows that have gone um, gender neutral. Um, the Independent Spirit Awards, um, I believe, uh, the Gotham Awards in New York City, they're gender neutral. So what you end up is, you know, you have a category, best lead performance. Your gender doesn't matter because also on top of that is there are people who don't um, identify as male or female. They're identifying as non-binary. So they don't even fall into the category of lead female uh, performance, lead male performance, and why? Uh, and that is
0: discriminatory, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, people should be who they are, and we could we that's unconscionable to exclude someone because they don't right. fit into a binary and, gender. Uh, right, category. and there
1: are there are actors who are saying, "Take me out of the race because I don't fit in those. Categories. I'm not comfortable being called." a male actor or a female actor. So it's, you know, I think this is a discussion that's gonna keep happening. I think for the economics, um, for an award show to get ratings, you want the most people there, you want the most glamorous. So if you end up taking, you know, let's, let's just take one category, you know, lead male and lead female and just make it lead performance, you've gone from 10 nominees to just five nominees. That said, do they then expand and have more nominees? But like you said, does that mean the white, cisgendered, straight, white male is going to be the one who wins all the time? And that's, you know, that gets, we won't know that until we know that. You know, I think all of this is a generational shift. Um, I think, you know, it's sort of when you do look at like LGBTQ rights and equality, you know, it's it's a generational shift kids today, they don't see the world um, as so defined by someone's gender or by their sexuality. It's just they're looking at each other like humans. And I think that 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 will play a part in when the next generations are in charge of these award shows or so on and so forth.
0: I mean, you sit down with lots of A-listers for the Variety Podcast. Who's mm-hmm. impressed you? And who's evil behind the scenes? Because the golden rule of thumb was, if you play a villain, you're normally a really nice person. But if you if you if your main character, for which you're known by, is sort of you know virginal and lovely and all sweetness and light, they tend to be evil behind the scenes. Is that true?
1: Listen, we know there are evil people in Hollywood, and a lot of them are getting their uh, karma. Obviously, within the Me Too movement and Times Up. But I have to say, you know, especially with my podcast, because you know that's going to be an extended interview. It's not just going to be you know. Three minutes on a red carpet, you know. I look at my podcast like I want to talk to the people I want to talk to. I can't think of a, a moment where like I'm like I'm going to do this podcast, but I don't really like this person. You know, I book my podcast. You know, I'm booking it. I'm you know. So it's you know. I've had everyone on the podcast from you know Barbara Streisand, Cher, Charlize Theron, uh, Robert Pattinson, Kerry Washington. Um, You know, I just recently had Pepperman, who's a big drag queen here in um, the US. You know, so it it, it, it so varies. Um, There are certain people that I always love to talk to who are always going to be fun. You know, Charlize is one of those people. We have a great rapport. Um, So anytime we're on a carpet, anytime I interview her, it's wonderful. Same thing with Lady Gaga. We just have a good rapport. So those people are fun. it's been a long, to be honest with you, it's been a long time where someone has completely turned me off during an interview. And I have to say, you know, when I was at E! News, you know, E! News is more on the tabloid side of coverage. So when you're at E! News, you got to ask those tabloidy questions. You have to ask those more personal life questions. And that's where it gets really sticky. Um, Variety, yes, we do get into personal life stuff, but it's, it's not from that going for the jugular tabloid um, angle. So it's been a while since I've been so turned off um, by someone who um, is evil.
0: (laughs) How does it work in terms of, you you said when you moved to Hollywood, you didn't know what a publicist was. I mean, now you must know Many of them, are they are they controlling? Is it the, the cliche with PR people or is presumably, frankly, it must be a win-win. The best PR people will cultivate a really warm, productive working relationship with you because they, they, they want what you can give them, which is attention.
1: Yeah. And listen, it's a transactional relationship. I mean, obviously, I know most of the big publicists in town because you know I've been doing this for a while and a lot of us grew up in the business together you know and I and I say that to the 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 young people that I mentor I said become friends with the people who are on your level in publicity because those are going to be the people you're going to be if you stay in the business who you're going to be dealing with and there are publicists to this day we were both assistants at the same time and they're now you know they have the top talent and I'm with variety and uh, and I am who I am Um, so, but I also know that they're transactional, most of the, you know, am I friends with some of them? Of course, you know, as any, you become friends with people in a work environment, but for the most part, it's a transactional relationship. I need something and they need something. And hopefully we come to a, a, a point where, um, we both get what we need. Um, and sometimes that means they piss me off. And sometimes that means I piss them off you know, it's transactional. They need something and I need something. So I have to cultivate relationships with them and they have to cultivate relationships with me. And, you know, many of those relationships have paid off countless times, Um, whether that's, you know, I get, you know, a podcast, I get to sit down with someone for 30 minutes or it's, they call me and say, hey, we want to break this news with you. Or we want this person to do their first interview with you. You know, an example of that is um, Leslie Grace. Um, you know, she was going, she did film, uh, Batgirl and as we know, HBO shelved the movie and just killed it. Like we're never going to see this movie. And Leslie, you know, she did a couple of Instagram posts about it, but when she was ready to talk, her team called me and said, listen, we know you have a good relationship with her from your interviews and you've supported her. Obviously I I supported her when, when she was going to star in Batgirl, we want to do the first, you know, real interview with her. I said, well, is she willing to go there? Because you know, there's the first interview, and they say, "Oh, then you get them." Then you get the interview, and all of a sudden, they kind of clam up, or they say, "Like, I don't want to say too much, but this is what I'll say." And then it's sort of useless. But I said, "Is she willing to go there? Can I really ask the question?" And they said, "Yes." So I did, you know, the first in, and that comes from cultivating relationships, not only with publicists but also the talent.
0: If we could be. At best to be favourable to the Hollywood execs that they might have been mistaken and shot themselves in the foot by not, you know, proceeding with that. Or, or is it worse? Is it that it, the that it's discriminatory? I mean, I perhaps naively think, why would they can a film that could have made money? The the primary motivation must be that they didn't think it would succeed.
1: I mean, in the end, what they basically came up with was by canning the movie, it turned into a tax write off. So the tax write-off was a better benefit for them wow. than trying to release it because you know the releasing them. <laughs> yeah, you know the but the, the you know the releasing isn't just releasing a movie. You know these movies, you're talking tens of, if not a hundred million dollars worth of marketing. So that usually, you know, that could double the cost of a movie. So if you kill that marketing, well, you've just saved a lot of money, and then right off the entire movie as a business expense. It sucks, it sucks for Leslie, um, Brendan Fraser, obviously, you know, who just won an, you know, recent an Oscar winner. Um, he, was, he was in the movie, he was a villain in the movie. Um, he was very sad to see the movie, not see the light of day. That said, I wonder if those executives were like, oh, we could have, you know, we really could have marketed this movie as starring Oscar winner, Brendan Fraser, but. They made the decision before he won
0: the Oscar. Do you have any sympathy with the Hollywood execs? It must be tough because like, of course, there are certain movies that are going to work and make loads of money and then others that aren't. I mean, like Indiana Jones 5 is about to come out. One, yeah. two and three were amazing. So you, even I sat there at the beginning of four thinking, well, this is a no brainer. I'm going to have a great time. It's utterly right. unthinkable that it, that movie could have ended up total shit. surely. Right. And yet there right. I was at the end of it thinking, Jesus. So even a so-called safe bet might not make yeah. money. Or, or does it not make money because they interfered, that they shot themselves in the foot? If they just let Harrison Ford, George Lucas and the like get on with it, then, you know, it would have succeeded.
1: I mean, that, you know, that everything in Hollywood is a gamble. You don't, you just don't, you know... You know, Indiana Jones out of can seems like a you know, there was great response to Harrison, the the, the legend who Harrison Ford is, Um, you know, and some of our top stories for the week were all Harrison Ford stories. That said, does that translate to people going to see the movie, which got a fairly lukewarm response from critics, from the audience there. So right now, the buzz isn't huge to go see the movie. So are people now going to say, you know what? I'll just wait till it's on streaming. I don't need to go into the theater to see it. Or will all this buzz and all this talk about Harrison Ford and the legacy of Indiana Jones, will it, will, and this is what I'm sure they're betting on, is uh, a generational crossover. You're going to get parents who want to go because Indiana Jones came out when they were kids and they want to bring their kids and say, oh, look, this is what I enjoyed when I was a kid, you know. And going to AI and computers and all that stuff. You know, there's a lot of backlash about the de- aging of Harrison Ford for flashback scenes, that they just it just doesn't work. But is that enough to keep people from going to the movies? Or do, do they expect some wonky, you know, computer graphics and CGI because most movies have that at this point? Um, so yeah, everything is a bet, and no one, no one could tell you. That something is definitely going to be a hit and not a hit. The, the, the most exciting stories from Los Angeles aren't like, oh, my God, an Avengers movie was a hit. No duh. It's when a small film becomes this huge hit and makes all this money that no one saw coming.
0: This de-aging stuff, I don't understand why they do it. The Irishman, it spoiled it for me. It felt like oh, it's so De-, De Niro had been put through an AI thing, which they obviously had. It was weird. Uncanny Valley, as they call it. The only thing that I, I think has ever worked is John Delancey, when he played Q in season two of Picard, when he appeared, I, I suddenly thought, oh, yes, he's aged 30 years, and they're going to have to deal with right. that. So he appeared very briefly, digitally de-aged for sort of five seconds, and then he said to Picard... Um, let me catch up and snaps his fingers. And then just because, you know, then it switches off. And I thought that was right. done well.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. And I don't know if, again, is it a generational thing? Cause you know, we're seeing just the new, the newest technology where it's not that great, but if you sort of start growing up with that, if you're you're a young person right now and you're just used to it, does it become like something that's not that bad in the future or do they improve the technology so much? And again, this gets to, you know, now contracts even have, are, are starting to have for talent AI provisions. Like, could you take an actor and AI them so much to the point that when they're dead, they could still star in a brand new movie? I think it was Tom Hanks the other day said in an interview, like, I could see myself starring in movies long after I'm dead. You know, but that said, remember when, you know, Holograms first started, a hologram concert of Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston, and we we're all like, oh, my God, that's so creepy, we I' not going to get into it.
0: The old joke yeah. is and about that, Elvis dying, so what one agent says to the other, good career move.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, these estates, we know these estates make huge money after someone's dead, but, you know, now, you know, we've gone from holograms to the aging to the thought of full-on acting roles when someone's dead. Again, will a new generation of moviegoers be like, okay, that makes, like, I'm not offended by that. That's the norm.
0: So what's next for you, Mark, if you don't mind me asking? I watched The Godfather recently, and if I was you, you should kill the (laughs) top five other entertainment journalists and then take their territory.
1: Uh, It doesn't really work, (laughs) does it, that analogy. So we might scratch that in post. (laughs) Um, What's next for me? I mean, listen, I'm just continuing. I really, you know... I know I sound like Variety's paying me to say this, but they're not. I really do love it there. Um, you know, I, what I like to say is that when I got to Variety, I, got, I, I, I found my home. Everything that I did before, I absolutely loved. It led to this moment. I feel like I'm in my sweet spot at the moment um, because back to what we were talking about earlier, I get to do the consumer stuff. I get to do the trade stuff. It's really sort of, sort of this great combination, this great melding of um, things. And, you know, like I said, to this day to break a story or be the first with a story or first with an interviewer, you know, even last night when I got Lisa Vanderpump and Alex Baskin, again, the, the producers of Vanderpump Rules, when I got them to react to the rating story, there was a part of me that was like, oh, should I just wait till the morning too? But there were other outlets there. And I'm like, they had to be asking, I imagine, um, because it was the story. But I said, you know what? Let me go home and get this up right away. And knowing I got it up right away, it just, it gives me this high. You know, people say all the time, after I've done a red carpet, my friends will say to me, if they see me afterwards, it's like, you had a good red carpet, didn't you? Because I'm bouncing off the walls.
0: I mean, I've seen you on screen. And uh, obviously it's transactional for the actors and and everyone else, but there does seem to be like genuine fun and it does seem genuinely enjoyable. I love it when Jimmy Kimmel puts Guillermo on the red carpet because he loves it and they're buzzing off him as well. It seems like really positive.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I mean, listen, the Met Gala was this great, Moment of like, I think almost every video interview I did at the Met Gala, pretty much went viral. It was just this one night, and then, you know, to top it all off, we haven't even talked about this: is the cockroach. I don't know if the cockroach made it to the UK. Um, did so. If you're watching the cockroach video, and you hearing someone scream, get a photo of the cockroach. Get a photo of the cockroach. That's me. But and, due to a series
0: of misunderstandings, comedic misunderstandings, there were quite a number of Hollywood lawyers standing around whether or not. So uh, I think the, the right, right, right. point's in the
1: wrong way. No, it was it was hilarious because what happened was the cockroach, um, for people who don't know, recovering the Met Gala were on the red carpet, it's the most glamorous red carpet, that and the Oscars and everyone goes into the gala we're waiting for rihanna to show up literally she's like an hour two hours later than everyone else. we're just waiting for rihanna that's the only reason we're there if rihanna wasn't coming we would have been gone a cockroach flies onto the carpet hits my cameraman in the head and then disappears then i don't know about a few minutes later half an hour later i'm standing there in my spot And someone from across the way, because the red carpet was on both sides of the stairs of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, someone starts pointing at me going, cockroach, cockroach. And the cockroach was right in front of me on the carpet. I pull out my phone. I start shooting, filming the cockroach. Kevin Mazur, the photographer on the carpet, who's one of the world's most famous celebrity rock musician photographers is shooting, and Kevin is like, and I start screaming to Kevin, get a photo of the cockroach. Get a photo of the cockroach. Kevin's taking a photo of the cockroach. I send that video to Variety's social team. They put it up, and the cockroach became... The moment of the Metropolitan uh, Museum of Arts Met Gala. It was insane. It was one of our most viral moments. So I'm not sure how I got into the cockroach story. I think it was, oh, you were asking if it's fun. Yes, it's fun. <laughs>
0: Well, this has been fun, Mark. But we've actually <laughs> run out of metaphorical tape. I mean, uh, the, the, the stats show that if the podcast goes on longer than four hours, uh, you know, we're not next. Uh, no, <laughs> the, it, uh,
1: no, it's called it's called a limited series. Then. It
0: is. Oh, I love that. I, <laughs> uh, Mark, I admire you. I admire your journalism. You're obviously having great fun, and I wish you the very best for the future. But most of all, thank you ever so much for doing the podcast. It was very interesting indeed.
1: This was awesome. Thank you so much. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by Podcast Partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.